Hey, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with three educators about the IEP process. This is IEP process part two. That's right. And with me today, I have Amanda Amerson and Dr. Terry Young. They're both back. They were on the part one of the IEP process. And with us today, we have a new voice joining us, Donna McNair. So lots of experience with special education and lots of experience in training teachers and administrators about the IEP process as well as special education in its, in its entirety. So lots to talk about today, lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hey, welcome back. This is IEP's part two. If you didn't hear IEP's part one, hey, I recommend you do that before you listen to this, and I'll have a link in the show notes. But today it's IEP's part two, and we're talking with Donna McNair, we're talking with Amanda Amerson, and Dr. Terry Young. So, with that being said, let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Donna McNair is retired from Washington County Schools in the state of Georgia. She's a former general ed teacher, special ed teacher, school psychologist, special ed director. After retirement, she became a part-time consultant with East, general GL- East Central GLRS. Say that three times fast. Um, she did contract evaluations for several school systems, and that's all school psychologist stuff. Um, and she also now works with Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, Georgia, where um, she is focused on the special education teacher training program. She looks forward to improving her bridge game, spending more time with grandchildren, and uh, trying to make them as spoiled as her dog, TJ, which I can't fi- wait to find out how spoiled that dog is. So with that being said, we also have with us Amanda Amerson, who is a program specialist with East G. G. Hill. Uh, yeah, like I said, try and say that three times fast with East Central GLRS. There we go. Where she provides professional learning on special education related topics to administrators, teachers and support staff for the 10 school districts in the heart of Georgia region. Amanda has presented at many state level conferences and collaborates with multiple state and local agencies to improve outcomes for students with disabilities. She has a master's degree in special education and has been a special educator for 23 years. Amanda is passionate in education and believes that through collaboration and excellent teaching, all students can reach their highest potential. Dr. Terry Young is the director of East Central Georgia Learning Resources System. And now I can't say it when it's spelled out. That's uh, uh, which is East (laughs) East Central Georgia Learning Resources System, which is East Central GLRS. There we go. Where she provides technical assistance and trainings on special education related topics to administrators, teachers and support staff for the 10 school districts in the heart of Georgia region. Though Dr. Young's through Dr. Young's leadership, the East Central Georgia Learning Resources System won the Aspire Leadership Award in 2015 for piloting and leading the region in the statewide student led IEP initiative. Terry holds a bachelor's degree in early childhood education and master's in specialist degree in special education with an emphasis on behavior disorders. Terry's doctorate degree is in elementary and secondary administration. Terry believes that all students can learn and that it is through effective leadership and teachers building positive relationships with students that true teaching and learning can occur. Say hi to everybody. Hi. Hello. 
Hey. There we go. And so in that order, that was Amanda, Donna, and Terry. All right. So we'll, we'll get uh, their names going here just a little bit. So, um, you know, before we go any further, one of the things that I want to make sure that uh, um, we do here is, is that I remind you that we are talking about uh, IEPs. This is, a, this is a part two. We're going a little, a little bit more detail. And if you'd like the general overview, I, I encourage you to listen to part one. Okay, so um, now that you've heard everybody here, let's uh, go ahead and uh, take a look at our first question, which goes like this. There's something called the PLAFP, or PLAFP. <laughs> not sure if it's meant to be pronounced or not, but uh, what is PLAFP and what does it do? So you said correctly, it is a PLAFP, um, and it stands for Present Levels of Academic Achievement and Functional Performance, big words, um, it's a section of an individualized education program or an IEP that establishes a starting point or a baseline that is used to, to develop the entire IEP. So it's probably what you would call the backbone of the IEP, and it's very, very specific. Um, it's where our measurability comes in, um, and it's an extremely important part of the IEP. So is it a document or is it uh, that you make sure that you complete this form type thing? Is that what it is? Yes, it is a document um, and it has several sections in it. Um, within the present levels, the IEP team must include things like the description of the child's current academic, developmental, and or functioning strengths and needs. Um, you also have results of the initial or most recent evaluations that are conducted on the student, um, the result of district-wide or statewide assessments, also explanations of how the disability affects the child's participation in the regular education curriculum, any concerns of the parents also noted in the present levels, and for preschool children, it's the impact of the disability on the participation and age-appropriate activities that go there. So it's really in-depth, it's really intense, um, and it probably is one that takes the majority of the time in the IEP meeting is to develop the present levels. They should be spending lots of time on that. Okay, so that's so basically the, what's going to happen is um, whoever's in charge of the meeting is going to bring this with them to the initial meeting. Is that what's going to happen? Well, the IEP must be developed as a team. So it's important that the team have information that they bring to the IEP meeting. Um, there are certain sections that, um, that the teachers will bring in information, but the IEP is developed as a team document. So um, bringing in information is good, but it's developed at that team meeting, should be. Okay. So why is this section of the IEP so important? Okay, the remainder of the IEP, including goals and objectives, accommodations, transition services, placement decisions are directly linked to the information contained in the present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. So like I said, in, initially, it's the backbone of the IEP. So everything else in the IEP is contingent upon what's developed in the present levels. Gotcha. So let's... Let's kind of put this in a perspective of, because if I'm a parent and I'm going to attend and you start talking about this, what is it we're really saying? What's going into this document? Um, all these different, say, lots and lots of data. 
Um, so, you know, we have to make database decisions when it comes to students with disabilities. We have to be able to describe and talk about what the student's doing in terms that are observable and measurable. And that comes in through data collection. Um, and it really has to be spelled out in observable and measurable um, terms. Um, we, we really look at not having generalities in the IEP in the present levels. You can't say, well, the student is Pullman poorly in reading, that's a general statement. Reading, as you well know, encompasses lots of different things. So maybe it's fluency that's causing the student not to perform well in reading. We have to spell that out in a way that's observable, measurable. It gives us a baseline, again, or a starting point that the rest of the IEP is developed upon. Excellent. And data is really extremely important. Wow, that's a lot of information. I. I, I would think that uh, some of you know the current performance information, like the test data and the information observations that happen during classes and stuff like this, that that's brought by the teachers to the meeting, but they're not coming with you know th you know predetermined outcomes and stuff like this. They're coming to have a discussion about this is it. You're exactly right. So they they bring data into the meeting. Sometimes they they bring in documents that that point to specific needs and issues and strengths of the student. Cool. So so why is this section of the IEP so important? The remainder of the IEP, including goals, objectives, accommodations, transition services, and placement decisions are directly linked to the information contained in the present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. So it is the baseline, the the premise of the rest of the IP. Gotcha. So all this information coming together is where we're going to, you know, we're actually going to develop the plan to help the child. Absolutely. Gotcha. Cool. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is data drives the educational process for all children. What types of data are included in the present levels? The present levels should include a summary of the relevant information from the child's evaluation. Now, having said that, it still needs to be reader friendly. You need to keep in mind that people who have extensive educational training are reading this document, but so are parents who often don't have that kind of training. So the document needs to be written in terms that everybody understands exactly what you're saying. You don't want just a listing of scores. You want an explanation of what those scores mean in terms of, is this average level? Is this above average? Is this well below average? Um, Formal evaluation measures should be explained well enough that we gain a clear understanding of how the child is currently functioning. We also need to include formative and summative assessments in this section. Uh, that is information about how this child does instructionally. And these are often more recent than the formal evaluation, so they're even more important in many, many cases. You know, one of the things that this makes me want to say right here is this This is why it's so important for whoever the parent or guardian is to attend, as well as whoever the staff members are who are invited to attend. They need to be at these meetings, right? Exactly. Good stuff. So, you know, one, one, uh, what data is needed for each disability category? And there are lots of different categories here. So, do you want to go through each one, or do we want to kind of highlight a couple of well, them? Well, I think I'll just say that it must be a comprehensive evaluation, and you must have data regarding all areas of suspected disability. 
Now, if the formal psychological evaluation has been done within two years, I would certainly say report those scores. But if the formal evaluation is older than two years, I simply would just say that the committee determined that the child was eligible for whatever category of services, whether that be learning disability or intellectual disability, and not focus so much on the scores of the formal evaluation and put more emphasis on the formative and summative assessments that have been done in the classroom. You know, I, I want to make sure that I say this because there's lots of initials, there's lots of an, um, acronyms that we use in, in education. And I think sometimes that's the scary part for parents. Uh, and it's a scary part for educators too. But I, I think part of that, um, we have to do our best to I mean, what, what do you think about this, kind of to explain what those acronyms mean as well as uh, um, the information that comes with it? Simply writing out the, the words rather than using the initials is very helpful, at least the first time you, you refer to that term. And when you are going over the discussion in the IEP meeting, certainly do that. Uh, we get so caught up in our acronyms sometimes that you know, we just forget that everybody isn't understanding what we're talking about. So it's very important that we do make sure that everyone is aware of what those acronyms mean. Excellent. Excellent. So what about district and statewide assessments? How did, what role do they play? They play a very important role. Information must include the results of statewide assessments, including test scores. They must indicate the achievement level, whether the child achieved as, say, a beginning learner learner, a developing learner, proficient learner, or distinguished learner. This should also include an individual analysis that provides a frame of reference for how the child is performing in comparison to the same age peers. In addition, IEPs should include the strengths and weaknesses as indicated by the by the domains of the subtest. For example, we have seen in IEPs in the past where just um, test scores were listed. Um, for someone just picking up an IEP, as Donna has already noted, for someone that's not in the educational field or a school psychologist, um, that tells us nothing. So we have to be very specific um, and indicate what those scores mean so that uh, a person, say, off the street would know what those scores are. That's excellent. I think that's it's also something that uh, we have to to keep that in mind that as we write and work on uh, on an IEP as an educator, that uh, it's not being written for us, really. It's Yes, absolutely. May I add something to what Terry's just said? Yes, please. For instance, if I say a child scored at the 48th percentile on a particular test, now to most people, they hear 48 and they think, well, gee, that's failing. You know, that's, that's bad. But 48th percentile is almost exactly in the middle of the average range. So that's why it's important that we need to spell out what these numbers mean and not just report the numbers. That's a good, that's an excellent point because, uh, yeah, even my, my brain went there at first. When you, when you said that, I was thinking, yeah, I'm almost at 50%. You know, I'm a, I had a friend who would, that's how he saw his test grades. You know, it's, I am almost at 50%. But it actually is the other, it's, it's thinking of it in a different term. It's thinking of it in the idea of the ranges, what is considered average or on, in the average range. Another way of putting is it, it should be um, reader friendly, just for someone off the street. 
Yeah, that's excellent. That's uh, being rear friendly is so important. You know, so one of the things I want to make sure that we uh, we get into is this. Why do we need so much data in the present levels? Well, we need the data because that helps us to determine what the actual strengths and the actual needs of the student are. Uh, in our present level, we have a description of academic skills, but we also talk about the student's developmental level and his functional strengths and needs. Now, when we talk about strengths that can pertain to any of these, and the same with needs, uh, academic, that's easy. It's the reading, the language arts, the math. Developmental areas include things like uh, communication skills, motor skills, social-emotional functioning, cognitive skills, and then functional areas involve things like self-care skills and social skills, just the child's ability to look after himself as appropriate for his age level, um, executive functioning. All of those are types of functional skills. And we have to know where the child functions in these areas so that we can determine his strengths and his needs. That's excellent. The, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, I think what, I don't know, I think one of the things that's scary about an IEP meeting is thinking about it in terms of some mystical thing that's got to happen. And in, and instead, it is really about trying to figure out how to help the kid. It's just that it has, uses a lot of acronyms. And so, I mean, wouldn't you think so? Is that, you think that's part of the, the problem? We, you know, we, we have to come to a meeting. We have to go to the school. We have to enter a room where, ooh, is there going to be, you know, is it, <clears throat> you know, is everybody going to sit at one end of the table? Well, except for me, the parent, I'm going to be sitting at the other end of the table, you know. I mean, I can imagine that it must be very intimidating for a parent to come into that room with all the teachers and sometimes administrators there. Um, but we're all there for the same purpose, and that is to develop an appropriate educational plan that is individualized to the student's needs and his strengths. And when we spell out all of this data, put it down on paper, it helps us to more clearly see what those strengths and needs are. And that's really important because we have to be very specific in our descriptions so that we can write goals that are appropriate for the student. Because the, the progress monitoring and determining if those goals have been met is an important part of the IEP. That's, that's what it's all about. Um, our goals have to be so specific that anybody could pick up that goal, read it, know exactly where that child is now, where we want him to be, how well he has to be able to do that particular skill, and when we expect him to do it. Excellent. And by the way, I just I want to remind listeners that uh, remember we're we're based in Georgia, and uh, Georgia is a uh, state in the United States. <laughs> but you'd be surprised that uh, many different states have uh, you know different interpretations. So just know that I do encourage you to. Uh, reference your state materials as well, but, but do know that we are, we are talking about how um, we understand and follow in the state of Georgia, okay? So I just want to point that out. That was a special message brought to you by, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> the, <laughs> with, with that being said, um, I got to say this because, you know, from time to time, there's different assessments that are mentioned and stuff like this, and we might get caught up in those words. And so, like, there's this one called Dibbles, right? Right. What's Dibbles? Dibbles is a curriculum-based measurement, um, and it's often used for measuring reading fluency and other reading skills. 
and uh, in, in the reading fluency part, a child is given a passage to read aloud and the examiner listens to him read for one minute. He records the errors that the child makes. At the end of the minute, he uh, determines how many errors he had or how many correct words he had in that one minute. And it's very easy to write a goal from Dibble's measurements, really from any curriculum-based measurements. That's why we are encouraging teachers to use CBMs, curriculum-based measurements, for their goals now. Because a typical goal for the Dibbles would be given a second grade uh, reading level probe, Johnny will correctly read 44 words per minute. You can tell exactly how many words you want him to read. He's got one minute to do it. We're not, in this case, we would not be so concerned with the number of errors. We're concerned with the number of correct words per minute. Um, the difference between having a goal like a curriculum-based measurement and something that's more general. For instance, if I said, my goal is to get healthy. Well, how am I going to do it? What am I, what am I expecting to be done to get healthy. On the other hand, if I said my goal is to eat a low-carb diet and lose 10 pounds, that's much more specific. You know much more about what I mean when I say get healthy. So what you're saying is everything has to be real, you know, kind of specific, right? Yes, it does need to be very specific. Uh, there's a mantra that says uh, we never should have a goal unless there is a need that's spelled out in the IEP, and that we never should have a need spelled out in the IEP unless we have a goal or possibly some accommodations to address that particular need. But anytime we have a need identified, we must address that need in the IEP. Excellent. So how involved is the parent in the process? Well, parents are our partners. And the IEP is developed by team, and the parent's information is critical to help us understand the student. Information in the parent's section of the IEP can be the result of ongoing communication with the parent regarding the child's academics, behavior, performance on goals, and or future plans. The parent should be provided an opportunity for specific input. Even if the parent does not attend the meeting or does not provide input at the time of the meeting, the information entered should be drawn from communication that has occurred over the previous school year with the parent. And schools should make every opportunity um, or effort to get that information from the parent. And I think that's that's something that's important here because it's it's intimidating this this thought about having to have this meeting. You know, it's kind of like being told you got to go to the principal's office, <laughs> except this is a different principal's office. It's, it's a it's a room with a lot of people in it, and and I think it's important that the parent, f you know, would you agree with this that the important <laughs> that the parent feel the important? I'm good. That's that the parent recognizes they have involvement in this. Absolutely, and we should make every effort to make them feel comfortable. Thanks. So what other information is included in the present levels of academic achievement and functional performance that we haven't talked about? Well, the present levels should include a statement on the impact and the involvement and progress in the general education curriculum. Um, the general education curriculum is considered um, the least restrictive environment. That's another one of our acronyms, LRE. 
Um, so we have to consider that general education curriculum first. So the impact statement, this section should describe the individual characteristics of the child's ability that affect his or her classroom performance. Um, some examples of specific characteristics for a specific learning disability may include things like short-term memory problems, poor organizational skills, and auditory processing problems, you know, things like that. Um, this section must indicate how the classroom's instruction is impacted by the specific characteristics or deficits of the disability. Um, so merely stating the child's eligibility category does not adequately describe the impact on involvement and progress in the general education curriculum. So statements should reflect the individual needs and not be applicable to a large group of children. And so many times um, in reviewing IEPs that, that have been written, um, you, you read statements like due to Susie's um, learning disability, you know, it impacts her function in the general, just general statements. And it really should be uh, very much more specific um, than that. So an example might include Amanda's disability in the area of auditory processing um, um, causes her to have difficulty processing problems and remembering information presented orally. That's very much more specific. This impacts her ability to follow multiple step directions to comprehend and recall complex concepts. Um, this also impacts her academic success with oral presentations in all instructional settings, reading, written language, and math, and to a lesser degree, science and social studies. So an impact statement like that is much more specific and much more um, relative to the person that's experiencing that. A disability affects each person as probably as much as, you know, our individual fingerprints are to us. So just having general statements about disability is not appropriate enough. Um, for teachers and, and IEP team members that are writing impact statements, um, think about it in three steps. The first one is what areas are affected due to the disability would be the first thing to do. The second thing, how does the student's disability impact the student's involvement in the general curriculum? What does that look like? Remember um, when Donna was speaking earlier about being very, very specific. So for each student, that is very, very specific. How does that impact for that specific student? And then the third thing to consider is what academic areas are impacted due to that exceptionality. So the impact statement that I just said, you know, I specified what specific subject areas were impacted due to that um, particular disability and what that looked like for that person. Um, so all three must be present to have a strong impact statement. Um, the impact statement should fully support the IEP team and determining other things too, like appropriate placement options. Um, and remember the general ed environment again is that least restrictive environment. We always start there, but sometimes, you know, students might need more intensive interventions that require a separate classroom or a separate placement. And we should always go back to that impact statement to really truly fully look at that continuum of services on, on what that student needs. So I want to make sure that I say this because sometimes, um, you know, because we're referring to least restrictive, 
Let's go with that, which means that, uh, you know, students are going to be who have IEPs are going to be in classes throughout the building, right? Absolutely. And so with that being said, that means that a teacher who's listening to this should become familiar with this process um, just as much as a parent needs to be familiar with the process, right? right? Absolutely. We're, we're all partners in this together. It takes a village. Um, it takes a whole educational community to educate all students and every student that comes into a classroom whether they have a documented disability and that's recognized by IDEA whether they are on um, interventions through RTI or multi-tiered system of support we have to meet their individual needs and it, it really does take a full community of educators and parents working together to meet every student's individual needs. Excellent. Okay, so one of the things that I want to make sure that as we're getting close to wrapping up here, and one of the things we haven't talked about is the role of the uh, of the student. Well, the student is very important in this process. In Georgia, we have um, Project Aspire, Active Student Participation Inspires Real Engagement, where the student um, with a disability actually participates in their own IEP meeting. They know their own strengths and weaknesses, and teachers have been working with students to understand what that is. Um, some students are able to participate fully in their present levels. Some students um, may come in and say, this is what I'm great at doing. This is what I'm not so good at doing. They may produce a PowerPoint or talk about their own data. Um, some teachers are really great with helping kids understand their own data. So some students in Georgia have actually participated in showing their data and where they're at and where they want to be. So involved with the goal setting. It's, it's important to have them involved. They are the person that we're talking about. They know themselves probably better than any person sitting at the table. Um, and their future depends on what we're deciding and their intricate part of that. Excellent. Thank you. So what about the uh, role of the administrator? I think the role of the administrator is very important in an IEP meeting. Certainly, probably maybe in large systems, an administrator cannot attend every IEP meeting. But if they are invited and can attend, it would be a wonderful opportunity for a couple of different reasons. It would be a great opportunity to meet that parent Um of course, build those relationships. Number two, it would be an opportunity to hear that um, IEP and be a part of that IEP, get to know that student, get to know the academic behavioral functioning levels of that student. It's always a great opportunity to get to know that team, um, the teachers, and know exactly what sort of IEP programming is going to be involved because after all if you're an administrator you are responsible for making sure that that IEP is implemented um, because it is an I um, a legally binding document um, and number three it's just a wonderful way to make sure that um, well as part of the LEA you are the principal and that child is a member and a part of your school just as any other student. Um, and sometimes I think administrators, well, I don't want to pick on administrators, but people sometimes, you know, forget about students with IEPs and they're just part of the population. And every kid, every kid needs an education, deserves an education, and should be treated just like everyone else. 
Excellent, excellent. So let's let's give some advice to a teacher, brand new teacher, who uh, gets this notification they need to attend an IEP. What advice would you give them? Whether the teacher is a general ed teacher or a special ed teacher, I would suggest that if they have any question about terminology or something that's been reported, that they ask questions. Don't be embarrassed to ask. If you, if you as a teacher don't understand it, it's more than likely that the parent does not understand it either. Um, for example, sometimes we get a report from a school psychologist that says a child has difficulty with executive functioning. Now, as a teacher, there could be two problems there. First of all, you might not know what executive functioning is in the first place. Secondly, executive functioning can involve a lot of different skills like attending or regulating your own behavior, being able to do goal setting or prioritizing, um, understanding different points of view, organization. All of those are executive functioning skills. And so you need to know exactly what it is you're talking about. So if you have questions, don't be embarrassed to ask. That's my most important advice to the teachers. That's awesome advice because I think sometimes we get afraid to ask, you know, especially especially if you're a brand new teacher, and it doesn't it actually doesn't just stick with brand new either. And administrators saying, "Well, you could be sitting there going, yeah, I understand this fully. No, I don't, but I'm just going to nod my head. Yes, yes, we're good, you know." And that's that's important to know what's going on because if you don't ask, then you'll just think you do, and, right. and then people will expect you to to you know be able to give follow up down the road. And if you don't know what they're talking about, you may not know what you should have been collecting information on or paying attention to. So good stuff. I, I think at this point, one of the things I need to make sure that we say here, and I, I said something about this briefly at the beginning, but it's very important for, for people to recognize. And that's, that's administrator, teacher, parent, guardian, student, everyone who's part of this process to be part of the process, to, to attend the meetings and not just come in and say, I just want to sign my name, go, I'm good. You know, just put my, just tell me what I need to do. You know, I'll sign off. I got to go. No, you really need to be part of it. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It is a team meeting for a reason. Everybody on that team is responsible for implementing that IEP. And, um, you know, it's not just a matter of being a warm body in a seat. You need to be a participating member and you need to remember that you are responsible no matter what your role, whether you're a parent whether you're a general ed teacher, special ed teacher, administrator, does not matter. You are responsible in part for implementing that IEP. Excellent. So we're about to close out here, and I got a couple of questions I want to ask here at the end. And uh, the first one is just a <laughs> first one. I got to say this because I let this slide in the beginning because it's such an important topic that we're talking about. Not that all the other ones aren't either, but you. Donna, in the in your bio, you said that you wanted to spoil your grandchildren like your dog, TJ. So just how spoiled is TJ? <laughs> well, I think I could probably talk for hours if I were to tell you exactly how spoiled he is. But let's just say that he has me very well trained. Nice, nice. <laughs> so is he sitting at the table at night? If he chooses. Nice, nice. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, all right. That's uh, very good. Yes, the... Uh, well, good luck with spoiling the grandchildren along the same lines as TJ. I like that. I had, uh, I, I don't know if this fits in with TJ or not, but I had uh, Godfather who, uh, um, who Godparents who what they did was uh, they had a little toy poodle who they he cooked eggs for him in the mornings, and uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, man, I, can I live with your poodle? <laughs> TJ goes to McDonald's regularly. 
Nice, nice. <laughs> Does he have a, something special he likes? Like, uh, well, if it's morning, he likes a sausage biscuit, but later in the day, he likes a hamburger. No onions. Onions are bad for dogs, and he loves ice cream. Nice. Excellent. Yes, I would say TJ is definitely <laughs> well-treated. Yes. <laughs> nice. So <laughs> with that being said, uh, before we go, uh, uh, Amanda and Terry, I mean, I yeah, I got to have you guys just just quickly so you remember their voices. So Amanda, say just say, hey, I'm here. This is Amanda. This is Amanda. All right. And so Terry. This is Terry. Now, I don't know if you guys listening or not could tell that those are really Southern voices. All right. They're, they're from, they're from Georgia. So you guys grew up here, right? Absolutely. Yes. Me too. And Donna did too. This is awesome. So I got a question for you. So do you guys like grits? I am a Southern chick all the way through. In my second lifetime, I would own a restaurant that would be a staple on the menu. Nice. How about you, Terry? Yes, I am Southern. Um, I love to eat, but I don't cook. But Amanda loves to cook, and I love to eat her cooking. So, yes. Awesome. Donna, you said you like them too? Oh, I love grits, especially shrimp and grits. Ah, Can't beat it. There we go. So, now with that being said, so now Donna's added another nuance to that. She likes (laughs) shrimp added into the grits. Do you guys have it cooked especially? Like, I I like grits. Just, I like grits. Just grits. Well, they're good anyway. Shrimp and grits, butter, cheese. I don't know what Amanda does to her grits, but she absolutely makes the best grits. I don't know what she does to them, but they are absolutely divine. Uh oh, we better not get let you tell us then. <laughs> can you can you post the recipe on the web notes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She looked like she's saying, "I can't tell anybody how I cook my grits." Nope, not gonna do it. <laughs> Well, I answered for you, Amanda. What? Um, I will say that they are not fat-free. <laughs> I thought they were perfectly, uh, you know. Not fat-free grits. No, no fat-free, huh? Mm-mm, not fat-free. <laughs> nice. <laughs> grits are awesome. I, 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 I'm I, sorry. I had to ask that question. I know this has, it seems like it has nothing to, well, it actually has nothing to do with our topic today. I just thought I'd share that with you all so we could have a topic about that. So I don't know about you guys. If you haven't had grits, you got to try these things, right? And and I'm not talking about, uh, now, by the way, I don't own, I have no stock in grits. Sorry. That's not, that's, and I don't own a, you know, it's not like it grows in a field someplace, but uh, it's, it's made out of corn. And uh, before we go into that science class there, we've got, uh, I just uh, like to find that out, you know. So how about you guys? Do you guys like grits, those listening to us? You ever tried them? (laughs) Well, I hope you've had a a good time listening to us today. I hope it's been, uh, uh, helped you with understanding a little bit more about the IEP process. I thank you, Amanda and Donna and Terry, for being here again today. And uh, um, thank you so much for uh, uh, being part of us understanding a little bit more about the IEP process. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. 
Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V, and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now.